Well, good morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, perhaps you've noticed that things look a little bit different today than how they normally look if you normally are here with us on Sunday mornings. So interestingly enough, on Friday, we found out that this divider was broken. And so we said, well, we've changed things up before. We can do it again. We're flexible here at the Oaks. So a little bit smaller setup today. We hope to be back to, you know, post-COVID standards next week and, uh, and be using the full gym. Um, you probably noticed whenever... Nick was reading that psalm in Psalm 6. It's like, this, these are really heavy words. And uh, there, are, there are some points in which that psalm that he read will relate to the sermon that I'm preaching. And at the same time, I know that while we come in and a lot of us, I mean, we have smiles on our faces, it is good to know that the Scripture gives us a category for lament, for sorrow, for weeping, and for going to the Lord with that. That the Lord is a, a safe place to take difficulty and hardship and suffering, and that he meets you in the middle of it. And actually, it, he wants your suffering to in, invite you into his presence. And so, wow, God is, God is really good. God loves us a ton. Uh, we are going to be in the book of Mark. So go ahead and find Mark chapter 9. We're going to be finishing up Mark chapter 9 today. We're committed to something at the Oaks that we call expository preaching, uh, which is really just a term that means preaching through uh, books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Now, here's the interesting thing whenever you do that. Uh, it means that you don't get to skip over parts of the Bible that might be more uncomfortable or even puzzling at times. And so today, we're going to be coming to uh, a, a moment where Jesus is saying some things that are, are pretty pointed toward his disciples. He's going to be talking about hell. He's going to be talking about, uh, you know, basically, I'm, I'm getting to preach a fire and brimstone sermon today. So if there's ever a sermon in which I think the enemy would want to convince you that you really need to take a phone call or that you need to run to the bathroom or see if there are any more vegan donuts left, like this would probably be the sermon uh, to, to try to make you leave or to get distracted. Um, know that this means that next week we're going to be talking about divorce the whole, the whole Sunday. We're going to talk about you know, divorce. When, when is divorce okay? When, it, when is it a sin. Like this is this is what it means to be committed to God's word and to walk through it together. And so I'm learning, we're learning, and ultimately we're all growing closer to the Lord in the process. Uh, what we're going to see is that Jesus loves us enough to have really hard conversations with us. And I think in our culture, there's almost this prominent lie, perhaps even subtle at times, that if you truly love someone, you'll never say anything that makes them uncomfortable. If you really love someone, you won't say anything that's challenging. If you really love someone, then you'll kind of avoid hard conversations at all costs. But honestly, in my life, some of the most loving conversations I've ever had have been really hard for me to hear. I remember whenever I was a senior in high school and I had to give this presentation in front of our class, and some of you guys have heard this story, and my teacher gave me a failing grade and whenever I like stormed up to his desk, just irritated and, and felt like something unjust had, had gone on, he looked me in the eyes and he said, Terry Lee, what you need to realize is that you may be a gifted communicator, but your content matters more than, than the way you say something. And man, did like the Lord use that as I began feeling like called to ministry and preaching. And I'm like, man, this is, the content does matter so much more than maybe just kind of getting up on a stage and, and talking for a little bit. 
that was a hard conversation that the Lord used. Uh, there was another time which, uh, you know, I was skipping church on Sundays because I was really into wakeboarding. And so I was at wakeboarding competitions on Sundays and not at church. And I remember my college pastor looked me in the eyes and he said, Terry Lee, what are you doing? Is this worth it? Like, like look at the, the, the joy of knowing Christ and, and what you're giving up for, for something that is, is temporary. That was a hard conversation and the Lord used it to draw me back to himself. I remember last fall, Whenever I was, I mean, I was just like, you know, felt, felt overwhelmed and really we're going through a season in our family where we were eating dinner as a family together once uh, a week without any other engagements because we had so much stuff going on. And, and Abby said, Terry Lee, we need to figure this out. This isn't working. That's a, that's a hard conversation that ultimately the Lord used to, to draw me back into being a, a more godly husband and father. Some of the most loving conversations I've ever had have brought me to the point of tears and have caused deep pain. And the reason that I tell you that is because I want you to know that Jesus will have hard conversations with us because he loves us. Think through this logic here. All of those people love me, but nobody loves me like Jesus. And the same is true for you. Okay, so if love can be expressed by hard and difficult conversations— and nobody loves you like Jesus loves you, then you should expect to hear hard and challenging things from Jesus. If love can be shown through hard conversations and nobody loves you like Jesus, then you should expect to hear hard and challenging things from Jesus. Perhaps that should have been the main point, but I want to summarize the text like this. That Jesus warns us with hard truths because he wants us to know the depth of his love and grace. These things are not in opposition to one another, that Jesus warns us with hard truths. Why? Because he wants us to know the depth of his love and grace. Now, before we get into reading Mark 9, I want to bring you up to speed as to what we saw last week. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching them all about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They're probably at Peter's house there in Capernaum. He just taught them that to truly love like Jesus loves, you should uh, love even the least of these. So he brings a child over and he says, look, if, if you love someone like I love someone, then you'll have a kind of love that doesn't even expect something in return. This is what it means to follow Jesus. Now, that's how we love others. Jesus, as he teaches his disciples, he's describing two different ways of life. He is creating a dichotomy between the way of the world, the way that does not follow Jesus, a way ultimately of sin that leads to death. And then he presents the other side, which is the way of following him a life that is infused by grace, a life that is lived in trusting the death and resurrection of Christ and ultimately following him. And so as we go through this text today, I want to show you kind of five aspects of, of this dichotomy in Christian discipleship. What does it look like to choose the way of sin and the world that leads to death? And what does it look like for us to choose the way of following Jesus, the way of life that is filled with God's grace? So with that being said, let's look at Mark 9, and we'll just begin by reading verses 38 through 41. God's Word says this, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's the first thing that I want you to see in this passage. That sin creates division, but grace enables unity. Sin creates division, but grace enables unity. Think about it. Jealousy, infighting, petty squabbles, backbiting, jealousy should not exist in a place in which people are a part of the same faith family, where people are brothers and sisters and call God Father. And yet, unfortunately, all of us could probably give examples of the ways that we have experienced this kind of division, even among the people of God. Perhaps even worse, we could probably relate to John the Apostle here, who looks at the work that God is doing through someone else, and instead of using it as an opportunity to come alongside them or to encourage them, he uses it as an opportunity to create division among the people of God. He unfairly judges and he begins to criticize the work that God is doing through someone else. Now, let me ask, have you ever looked down on someone else because they do things differently than perhaps we do them at the Oaks? Has the fact that we have a plurality of elders or covenant church membership or that we value expository preaching, has, has those things ever caused you to belittle the work that God is doing through another church or another ministry on campus or somewhere else? Has, has the fact that maybe you have a really strong stance on what could be a, a secondary issue, maybe it could be Reformed theology or baptism or the type of worship music you listen to, has that ever puffed you up with pride or caused you to slander someone else and perhaps what God could be doing through them? You see, the first repercussion of sin's entrance into the world is creating division between us and God, but that often causes us to create division between people that are within our own faith family. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 38. Look, John says to Jesus in verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now, here we learn two things. This person is casting out demons, which means he's doing something compassionate and merciful. He's relieving someone from demonic oppression. Not only that, he's doing this in the authority of the name of Jesus. Okay, so at this point, Jesus has already sent out the 72 uh, disciples in addition, like the number of the 12 included in that. But he also had a lot of other people that were following him. He gave those people the ability to preach the gospel and also the ability to cast out demons. And so it makes sense that there would be someone else who, under the authority of Jesus, is able to set free those who are demon oppressed. Now, what did John do? He tells Jesus, yeah, we asked him to stop. Why? Now, here, the ironic thing, first off, is that just two sermons ago, we heard the disciples all up in arms because they couldn't cast out a demon because they were not praying enough. And then here's this guy who's not in the 12, and he's able to cast out demons because he's like under the authority of Christ. And, and the second thing that we see here is that John asks him to stop doing the very thing that they were sent out to do. Now, why? I think it's because sin often creates division. I, I love John, the apostle. I mean, I love the book of John, and yet this statement that he makes to Jesus is just dripping with pride. Uh, he, he speaks against someone, tries to stop them, even though they are doing a mighty work in the name of Christ. Now, the interesting thing is that John, look at his words again. He says, we tried to stop him because he was not following us. 
He's, he, was he following Jesus? This guy probably was following Jesus. John stops him because he wasn't a part of the 12. He wasn't following us. He's like, hey, he's not in our group, so we need to stop what he's doing. We can't credit his ministry because he isn't doing exactly what we are doing. Now, how would Jesus respond to that kind of territorialism, to that kind of pride, to that kind of self-centricity? Well, Jesus here says, don't stop him. He says, look, verse 39, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. Now, he's giving a general principle there, and he's saying, look, you let me worry about this. Don't, don't try to run around and kind of be the police. You focus on the ministry that I have given you and called you to. And, and know that, by and large, those who are doing work in my name will not be able to speak evil of me. Yes, there will be times that people misuse the name of Christ for their own gain. But Jesus is saying, you focus on what I have called you to do. Uh, there's actually a story in which you see Jesus taking care of those who misuse his name. In Acts 19, there's this wild story that you have to read later, and it's called the seven sons of Sceva. And there are these Jewish priests, and they see that all the apostles are able to cast out demons with great power, and they're kind of having some trouble, and there's this guy who walks up with a demon. And so uh, one of the priests looks at the guy who's oppressed with a demon, and he says, I adjure you, talking to the demon, in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. And the person with the oppressed demon kind of cocks their head to the side, and you hear the voice of a demon come out, and the demon says... Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who do you think you are? And in that moment, the demon leaves that possessed man and falls upon those seven sons who are misusing the name of Christ. Jesus is, is jealous for the glory of his name, and he will protect his holiness. God is calling us to be primarily concerned about the ministry that he has called us to. And so Jesus says, look, those who, who speak well of me will not speak evil of me. Those who work in my name will not soon speak evil of me. And then he gives kind of this proverb. He says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now, at first, I think we can read that and kind of think that that's kind of like a shrug your shoulders affiliation with Christ. Like, well, you know, if he's not, you know, just outright against us, then he's for us. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is presenting the only two options, the only two stances to have in responding to Christ. You are either with Christ or you are not with Christ. There, there is no in-between. There is no neutral. And so what Jesus is saying is ultimately it will be exposed. Every single person who is for me or who is against me, you focus on the call that I have given you. Don't create division. Follow me and, and I'll take care of who is legitimate and who is illegitimate. And so maybe you're, you're here wrestling with the question, okay, so when do I choose that, that my position on an issue is more important than seeking unity with other brothers and sisters in Christ? And when is unity in, in the church or among other believers more important than the position that I have on a certain subject or doctrine or philosophy of ministry? This is super practical, right? I want you to be able to apply this throughout the week. I think that there is a, a quote from St. Augustine that is helpful. He says, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I think that's kind of what we can lift out of this passage. In, in essentials, 
your, your position is, is ultimately one that says, hey, the only way that we can be unified is if we agree on these essential things, right? So while we may have friends that are Orthodox Jews or friends that are Muslims, because they do not believe essentially that Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, that, we're not saying that unity is more important there. Because in essentials, a unity is created. But at the same time, where there are issues that are maybe second-tier issues, where there's liberty, so, you know, should you have a fog machine at your worship gathering? Should you speak in tongues? Should you sing out of a red church hymnal? Right? On, on things that you could say, I think there is a way to be faithfully biblical in the essentials here, and yet there's, there's room for disagreement and still brotherhood in the church. It may change the church that you are a part of, and yet it still enables you to pursue unity in the church. And then in all things charity, that's good. It's a tragic reality that so many people have betrayed the witness of Christ by zeal for their own second-tier soapbox. Don't make your passion about something that is not essential discredit the gospel you proclaim to the world. And so I, I want to I encourage you in this because following Jesus is often hard. So let us pursue unity. Grace enables unity. It's a mark of Christ-like maturity to be able to value Christian unity over perhaps uh, winning an argument or appearing right with someone who may view something differently than you in a non-essential matter. How do you know what's essential? Honestly, reading scripture. Like, like the, the way that you know what is essential is just by being saturated in the word of God, not by your own experience, not by finding a bunch of people that agree the same thing that you do, but by being saturated with the scripture and full of the Holy Spirit. And so then Jesus teaches one of the ways that we can be unified. Verse 41, he says, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. He is saying that people may do things differently than you, and yet it is valuable because anyone who does something for me, even perhaps something that feels menial, like giving a glass of water, is important to me. Uh, compared to casting out demons, giving someone a cup of cold water might seem like a small thing, and yet Jesus is saying it matters. It is rewarded, not, not in a way in which you uh, work for your salvation, but as an outworking of the salvation that you have received, that you serve other people. And I want to make one final observation here. I think that one of the reasons that we're often so critical of other people is because of our own insecurities, it's strange that it works like this, but I think whenever we belittle other people, it has a way of kind of creating a false sense of, of spiritual maturity for us. If we can point out what everybody else is doing wrong, it's kind of like, well, I must be really, really right then, and I must be really, really good with God. And, and so I think that if John is feeling that insecurity here, Jesus addresses it specifically whenever he says, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And what he is doing there is he is reminding us as disciples that we belong to Christ. You, you don't matter because whenever you compare your spiritual fruit and ministry to someone else that you feel like you've, you've gained more or, or because you're, you're you know, crossing all your T's and dotting all your I's. The significance here is belonging to Christ. 
And so you're able to come along others who are belonging to Christ with a sense of assurance and security and build them up instead of tear them down. What we'll actually see in the next point is that if there is someone who is immature in their faith or perhaps struggling with learning and has been caught astray by another wind of teaching, that instead of judging them and leaving them, you actually have a responsibility to steward that relationship and to bring them along into biblical faithfulness. And so with that being said, let's look at verses 42 through 50. We read this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, then how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The second thing that we see here is that sin harms others, but grace helps others along through discipleship. Grace helps them along through discipleship. You see, in in verse 42, Jesus continues to teach, and he he brings along that child, or maybe the the child he was referring to in the last passage we studied, is still nearby, and he motions toward that child and says, anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better if they had a millstone hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. And whenever I read this passage, immediately the concept of secondhand smoking came to mind, right? It's, it's the, the concept that, you know, someone could be smoking in a car and, and those around them are affected. There's tar building up in their lungs. They're, they're you know, in, 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 insides are being changed by what is taking place around them. That there can be this secondhand effect because of what is taking place. And Jesus here is saying that your sin has secondhand effects, that you need to watch your life because it affects those around you. It affects the little ones around you. According to Jesus, we will be held accountable for the way that our sin impacts other people. Do you think about that? He uses a startling metaphor here. He says, it would be better for you if a millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. A millstone in this time period, I actually have a picture of it, was kind of this stone that was used to crush grain. And so a donkey would be attached to one side and it would go around in a circle just continually crushing that grain. Now this thing would weigh over 100 pounds. And so what Jesus is saying is if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea, there would be no surviving that. It would be better for you to face that fate than to cause someone to sin and to enter hell apart from Christ. You see, whenever he uses the word sea in in Jewish thought, that was always a way to refer to judgment. So think of the flood with Noah or Jonah whenever he was running away from the Lord and he gets thrown into the sea. Like anytime you see the sea or water mentioned, the reason we celebrate baptism by going down into the water to symbolize death and then coming back out, like whenever Jesus talks about his baptism in his death. So, So Jesus is saying here, it would be better 
for you to be thrown into the sea of judgment than for you to be for you to cause someone to sin and for it to change their eternity and for you to live in a way that is unrepentant in in making that decision. Whenever we hear this, it causes us to think about the ripple effects of our sin. It causes us to think about the commitment that we make to the children that are among us. I mean, if you're a parent, if you're an aunt or an uncle, if you serve in our kids' ministry, if you have any kind of aspect in your life of where, where you're modeling what it means to follow Jesus, you have to consider the impact that that is making on those around you. Let me get specific. If you are constantly anxious around your children, then what is that communicating to them about the sovereignty of God? If, if you're constantly short or impatient with your children, what does that communicate to them about the unconditional love of the Lord? This is convicting for me, guys. If you are constantly choosing extracurricular activities over the Sunday gathering or missional community group, what are you teaching them about the worthiness of Christ and treasuring him over any other priority in this life? Everything speaks. Now, not only that, most scholars would say that, that the application for this scripture goes beyond just the young, those who are children, but actually to those who are vulnerable and younger in their walk with the Lord. And so we have kind of this commitment and responsibility to not cause any other person in their walk with Christ to stumble. The word that is used here for, for stumble is scandalizo. And so it's kind of any, anything that would be a, a scandal is kind of where we get that word from. Anything that would hinder someone in their walk with the Lord. So let's examine perhaps the stumbling blocks that could be in our own lives. Do you ever tease someone in such a way that it would promote kind of this anger in their heart or self-loathing, that they would, they would view themselves as less than being purchased by the blood of Christ, made in the image of Christ by the way that you tease them and give them a hard time? Do you ever dress in a way that, that desires someone else's attention or incites jealousy because, because of the way that, that you're able to clothe yourself? Do you ever uh, and flaunt your wealth or your accomplishments in such a way that it promotes coveting in others? Do you initiate conversations with gossip or with slander? Do you post political commentary on social media that makes it difficult for someone to worship beside you on a Sunday morning because of the way that you have responded to posts throughout the week? Do you recommend movies or TV shows that could be harmful to another Christian's walk with the Lord? Do you ever, you know, kind of hear someone quoting, uh, you know, a, a book that they're reading that you know is theologically off or maybe listening to a pastor that you would say, I, I don't really think he's teaching the Bible, and you just kind of nod and say, oh, that's interesting, instead of directing them to Scripture, directing them toward someone who is more faithful. You see, according to Jesus, it is better to drown than to cause someone else to sin. Now, each person is, is responsible for their own sin, Right? And yet we are also called to be stewards of these relationships that we have. In the medical community, there's something called the Hippocratic Oath that I know that probably many of you have taken, and it is this commitment to do no harm. Well, in the Christian walk, we have a commitment to do no harm to those around us. And grace helps us to help others along in their walk with the Lord. We call this discipleship to come alongside those and to say, hey, would you want to read the Bible together? 
Could I recommend this sermon that I was listening to or this podcast that I listened to this week that was really encouraging to me? I read this in my Bible reading plan today. This verse meant a lot. I'm praying it for you. Like, how can we come alongside others? It's not simply enough to say, well, you know what? I don't really think I'm doing anything to make anyone stumble right now. We need to take responsibility and say, how can we help others along? How can we be the reason that God is growing someone else in their faith? Let us not be satisfied with simply saying, I don't think I'm hurting anyone, but let's aim for helping others in the same way that Christ has helped us. The next thing that I want you to see in this passage is that sin downplays the seriousness of sin, but grace removes sin for assurance and deeper communion with God. I know that that probably seems like a typo at first. Sin downplays sin, like how does that work? But one of the things that sin does is it actually makes us think that it's not as big of a deal as it is. And yet whenever you read what Jesus is saying here, it's, it kind of is shocking, right? He's saying, if your hand is causing you to sin, grab the reciprocating saw. If your eye is leading you to sin, you got two of them, take one of them out. Like you're, you're reading this and you're thinking, well, what is going on here? Like Jesus is, is so in, in my face. He's saying very hard things to me. Now, what Jesus is not saying here is that you should practice self-mutilation. What he is saying here is that sin is so serious that you, would be, you should be willing to sacrifice anything that is causing you to sin so that you can pursue him, so that you are unhindered in your walk with him, even if it costs you a lot. Earlier this week, I was talking to Jamil. Uh, who is an infectious disease doctor at the Oaks. And he often sees people who have like a limb that has died. Uh, Maybe there's circulation issues. It's not receiving blood anymore. And so he has to have the really hard conversation and going to them and saying, I think we need to remove uh, your, your hand. I think we need to remove some toes. We need to remove your feet. And while that is a really hard conversation to have, in that conversation, he says to them, if we don't do this, if we don't have this procedure, then this could spread throughout your body. This infection, this disease could enter your bloodstream. It could ultimately lead to your death. And at the moment that he has that conversation, what they realize is that this is no longer a sad conversation, but a conversation that has given an opportunity for life. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you need to cut something off or out of your life, so that you can have assurance that you truly belong to Christ, that the commitment that you made however long ago is actually being worked out in your life, then it is worth it. If you have to cut something out of your life to experience deeper communion with the creator of the universe, then so be it. May we give up those things that are temporary so that we can gain life in Christ, enjoyment of Christ that is eternal not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a reality to prove that we have truly been saved. Jesus is saying here that it is better that you lose the hand and gouge out the eye because if you are willing, if you are unwilling to go to the extreme, then you love whatever you are clinging to more than you love Jesus. So what does that mean for you? Does that mean that you need to cancel Wi-Fi at your house or, or that you need to delete your Netflix subscription? Does that mean that you need to change jobs so that you can spend more time with your family or so that you can worship on Sundays? Does that mean that if you're constantly jealous of the life that you see other people living, then you need to delete 
or whatever social media platforms that is constantly uh, kind of putting those images in front of you? Does it mean that right now, if you are in a dating relationship and you're saying, you know what, this does not honor the Lord, this relationship is not pure, it could mean that you need to call up your boyfriend or girlfriend this afternoon and say, you know what, I think we're done. Or at least we need to realize that this is not what love looks like. Like, what do you need to cut out of your life? If Jesus was to say this to you and not simply use the metaphor but get specific, what would it mean for you to say, I am willing to lose whatever might seem important at the moment to gain what I treasure immeasurably more, which is Christ. And if we don't love Jesus enough to make that decision, then perhaps during communion today, you need to examine if you truly have a relationship with the Lord at all, or if you're just going through the motions of Christianity. I'm saying this to you because as your pastor, I love you. I care deeply for you, and I wouldn't want you to nurse some sort of sin and falsely think that you are good with God if you are unwilling to go to whatever links he is calling you to rid yourself of this sin. And the great thing is that Jesus gives us this warning because he also gives us his Holy Spirit. And the very resurrection power that raised him from the dead is at work within your veins to bring about change in your life. So if you're there and you're guilt-stricken over perhaps whatever it is that the Lord brings to mind, then let me say this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because the Holy Spirit is continuing to do a work in you, he can not only cut off this sin, but bring about healing and restoration that you may enjoy your walk with Jesus. Fourth, I want you to see that sin results in eternal hell. And yet, that grace subjected Christ to the hell that we deserve. This is a heavy point. This is a heavy text. That sin results in eternal hell. And the seriousness of our sin is displayed in the consequence of it. That hell is a real place. And it is terrible beyond imagine. It is a place of forever conscious torment. And we don't like this. Even in the church, we don't like this. I think culturally, we don't like this. We like to make light of hell. We like to say, man, it's been a hell of a week. Or we say, you know, uh, that, that guy, I mean, he played a hell of a game last, last night. And yet, if we understood the reality of hell, we would never use it so flippantly. Jesus teaches us more about hell in Scripture, talks more about hell than he talks about a lot of things. And I think he does that because if it was not coming from the lips of Jesus himself, we might try to dismiss it. And yet, hell is a tragic reality. And so here he uses this comparison. Whenever he talks about hell in, in verse 46, he uses this comparison to a place, a real place called Gehenna that was in the valley of Hinnom just to kind of give us a, a, metaf- a metaphor of, of kind of how bad hell is. And even this doesn't go far enough. But Gehenna was an awful place. It was prominent during the time of King Ahaz and during King Manasseh. It was a place that people would actually go to sacrifice their own children to the pagan god Molech. It's a terrible place. It was a place known for the most unspeakable practice of sin, desecrating those who were created in the image of God. 
And then later in Israel's history, Josiah, a good and righteous king, would come along. He would, he would put kind of an end to this child sacrifice that was becoming rampant, even among God's people, and he would declare this place unclean. He would declare this place the city trash heap for Jerusalem. And so everything, all of their refuse was taken to this place. This is where all of their waste went to be constantly burned. It was disposed in this place called Gehenna. Corpses of dead people were hauled to Gehenna to be burned. They would be there decomposing. When Jesus wanted to describe hell, he compared it to this place, a place where pagan sacrifice was used to worship Satan, a place where worms constantly fed on corpses, and a place where fire was never quenched. Hell is an unbelievable and a sobering reality. And the fact is that there are people right now, as we are here, that are experiencing conscious torment in hell. And perhaps, although they've been there for 700 years, they are no closer to serving the eternal sentence that they have been given for choosing not to follow Christ and for committing sins against a holy God. It is a place in which the worm will not die and the fire will not stop. By this, we know that hell is an eternal place. It's not a place where people go for a little while and that it ends. No, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus declares that both for the righteous, there will be eternal life with God, and for those who are unrighteous, that there will be eternal damnation. And he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This means that the, the idea of annihilationism, that people just cease to exist after they die, or that perhaps they, they will you know, experience hell for a little while, and then when Jesus returns and makes all things new, that hell will cease to exist. That's simply not true. Hell is a place of eternal torment and condemnation. And let me plead with you to, to consider the next million years for a moment, because you will live forever. You will live forever. And the choices that you make over the next 30 years will have an impact on the next 3 million years of your existence. And if you die apart from Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. And I want to plead with you to trust in Christ. I want to plead with you to not receive that fate of eternal condemnation, but that you would find Christ and his crucifixion for your sins on the cross as worthy of your trust and that you would turn to him and have life. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, hell just seems too harsh. How could a God who is loving send people to hell? How could a God who is loving condemn people to eternity in hell? But let me lovingly say that if your view of hell is that it is unjust, then perhaps your view of God's holiness and the reality of sin is incomplete. You see, an offense is not simply measured by the action, but it's measured by the, the action and who it is committed against. So, for example, if, um, if you were walking, you know, with one of your friends down the sidewalk and they said something that, uh, you know, annoyed you or you're just feeling mean in the moment and you pushed them down, uh, you know, they may push you back. They may give you the silent treatment. And, you know, it's just kind of like, okay, that is what it is. Now, imagine that you did the same action. Right? You, you pushed someone down, but instead, it's as you're walking by and there's a police officer in your way, and so you just push the police officer. The same offense, and yet committed against a person of different position, different authority. Now, immediately, that is 30 days in prison, and it will lead to trial. 
Now, let's say that for some reason, President Biden is in town and you get, you know, you're, you're walking by him and you're just having a real sour day. And so you're like, I'm in a pushing mood. I've already done it a couple times. And so you now push President Biden and he falls over. Okay, immediately, that is five years in prison, could be a $250,000 fine. It could even lead to life in prison. Now, think about it. The same offense committed three different times, and yet the consequence is different because of, of whom in which you committed that offense against. Now, if this is some, you know, small analogy here with people who have positions of authority or power, imagine the, the consequence of sinning against an infinitely and eternal holy God, not just once, but again and again and again. In fact, our hearts turned against God, rebellious toward God, constantly committing cosmic treason against an infinitely holy God. It is just for God to execute His wrath on people for eternity who do not know Him. And I'm not saying that that is an easy thing to believe, but what I'm saying is that it is just and God is good and it does not contradict God's love or good character one bit. I also think this helps us to appreciate the fact that Christ took hell in our place. You see, the great news is that if you are under the sound of my voice right now, that, that you don't have to experience hell because Christ on the cross experienced hell for you. In that agony, in the hours in which he hung there, the consequence of our sin, those who have trusted in Christ, was poured out upon him in full. And if you trust in Christ, this sermon is the closest you will ever get to the reality of hell because Christ took it in your place and then said, it is finished. And so for you, the response here is not fear, but one of deep gratitude and worship. This also gives us a burden of urgency to every single person we know because hell is real. There's a great reality that hell exists. Because hell exists, the love of God is displayed. Now imagine for a moment, I'll say this and then we'll be done. Imagine for a moment that I was walking with uh, one of my good friends, me and Nick, we were walking down Central Parkway. And, you know, I just tell Nick, you know, me and Nick are close, so we never hang up a phone call without saying, I love you, right? But it's like, a, I love you, man, you know? So it's like, got bro vibes in it. But I'm like, I love you, man, you know? Now, what if we're walking down Central Parkway and I just put my hand on Nick's shoulder and I say, I love you, man, and then I just jump out in front of a car? You'd be like, well, that, that is, doesn't make any sense that he just did that. You know, that was a weird way to try to express love. Now, imagine the same scenario in which me and Nick are walking down Central Parkway and you know he's kind of looking off to the side and I see a car jump the curb and I know that it is either we both get hit or I have the opportunity to step forward and push him out of the way and then I take the brunt of that hit and he is saved. Now his response to that would be, man, he loves me. You see, the reality of hell and the wrath that we deserve and the judgment that is impending upon anyone who does not trust in Christ is what enables us to see the magnitude of Christ's love for us in which he goes to the cross and says, I'll take that for them. 
I'll allow the eternal suffering that they deserve for sinning against a holy God to be poured out upon me, which is why the hard things that Jesus says to us actually serves to display the love and grace of God that has been shown to us. And so let me leave you with this. The author of Hebrews says, just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see, every person deserves judgment. Every person deserves the consequence of hell. And yet for those who have trusted Christ, their gift is salvation in Christ. Let's pray.